to the Wild Feather Podcast. I'm Brooke Dunwell, serial entrepreneur, sponge for life, and lover of people. Join me as we uncover the stories of courageous female entrepreneurs, founders, and investors pushing beyond limitless boundaries. Let's explore their creative journeys and pursuits to greatness. Lynn Power is our guest today. Lynn Power spent 30 years running and transforming brands. She recently left the big advertising agency world to create Masami, a premium clean hair care brand, which launched in February of 2020. Prior to making the loop to the startup world, Lynn was the CEO of J. Walter Thomas, New York. She worked with well-known brands such as Listerine, American Express, Clinique, Hershey's, Pizza Hut, and more. She has a wealth of knowledge and amazing ideas. She is a fantastic at networking and is a true treat to have her on as a guest. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for coming and joining us on the podcast today. How are things going? Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's really fun to be here and chatting with you. And I didn't even know that I was like wearing something that actually kind of like matched with your set. <laughs> so um, I guess we're, we're highly coordinated today. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's awesome. So we'll just dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you made the transition into being a founder um, and what that looks like, because you've had yes. a fantastic career. I mean, it's a big question, so I'll yeah. try not to take too long to try to answer that. But yeah, I spent most of my career, 30 years in advertising. And, you know, a lot of people will ask me, was it really like Mad Men? And I'm kind of like, yeah, the beginning definitely was still very <laughs> Mad Men-esque. And I'm happy to say over the years, it's slowly gotten better in terms of um, women in leadership positions. Uh, I was always one of the people that they, you know, kind of hold up to say, well, well, you're, you're the role model. You don't need a role model because you are the role model. And I'd say, but it would be really nice if there were other women around who were doing things and senior and that was just... Uh, wasn't so much the case when I was in the business, but certainly now I think it, it is. Um, I loved my career. I, I, um, I really fell into it. I didn't go to school for it. And I always tell, you know, um, college students or, or anyone kind of trying to figure out what they want to do. Marketing is a great option. Advertising is a great option. You get to work on lots of different businesses. Um, hence my, my beauty background, because over the multiple years of my career, I worked on L'Oreal, Nexus, Clinique, Vichy, you know, lots of great beauty brands. And I love that. But I also worked on Campari, Wild Turkey, Hershey's, Tylenol, you know, all sorts of different things. Right. So, um, anyway, um, I, I, think I, that sounds, I think the career in, in advertising is great. I think it sounds so much fun being in advertising. Like, just give us a little hint, background. What did you do specifically in advertising? You were working with all these brands, but. Yeah, it's a good question. For the young listeners. Yep. And if people don't really know the industry, they don't know the different roles and the types of jobs that are available necessarily. So I was what was called an account person mm -hmm. or otherwise dubbed a suit. Um, because I was sort of the business brain of the creative agency. So 
you would be assigned to an account. Um, my very first account I worked on was Pizza Hut. And you would mm -hmm. have to coordinate with the client what their strategy was, what their marketing goals were, figure out, you know, um, how to put together a creative brief and then assemble the team uh, at the agency side to kind of, you know, go tackle it, right? Go execute it. So you were sort of the quarterback of the team in a, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I really did enjoy that. Um, and when I got into the business, it was before there were what, what is called now account planners, which are the strategists who do some of that strategy work. And it used to be that we, you know, the account people used to do it. But um, anyway, um, so the idea being like, if you're somebody who likes to um, work in a team, coordinate lots of different pieces, put together moving parts, know just enough to be dangerous about all of them, but not go very deep in, in you know, you're not an SEO expert or you're not necessarily, you know, the, the Facebook expert on the team, but you know enough to be able to pull the right people in and get it done. That's a good job for you. And then, you know, the beauty is, okay, I started in Pizza Hut. Then I went to another agency. I worked on American Express. I worked on Illinois Tourism. Like you get to just work on very different things and they're very different businesses. And, and then you start to see what you like and where you gravitate. Um, my husband, I met him at my second job, actually, at Ogilvy and Mather. And he ended up working on a lot of car accounts and financial services accounts because that's kind of what he loves, where to me, that's like not fun, you know? <laughs> Those are just not <laughs> categories I find particularly engaging. So we ended up moving to New York. He actually was working on IBM. And then I ended up, um, I worked at, um, I actually worked on P&G. And then I worked at BBDO, which is a large agency. Um, and I worked on all the Gillette business. And I launched uh, Gillette Venus, which was really fun. Um, and worked on a lot of that business. And then oh, I went and worked fun. on L'Oreal. Yeah. Um, so I think advertising is great if you're somebody who does like variety and you like to mix it up and you don't like to go like work on the same thing all the time. It's it's a really good business for that. But mm -hmm. but fast forward to 2018, I'd work my way up the ranks, so to speak, in advertising. And there's this illusion, I think, that a lot of us have mm -hmm. in a lot of industries, not just advertising, that the top jobs are really sexy, right? Like that they're kind of glamorous and you get to do a lot of really interesting <laughs> yeah. things, right? Like how fun being the boss. Yeah. Um, but it's not so fun, actually. Um, it was it's not always what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> no, it's not always what it's cracked up to be. And I mean, my when I was running Arnold, it was fun. It was smaller. It was creative. Um, it was growing. It was great. I went to J. Walter Thompson, which is a very large agency, um, $2 billion agency, you know, something like 200 offices worldwide. And um, I was running the headquarters and that that was not so fun because um, a lot of what I was dealing with was bureaucracy, which is sort of the opposite of why you get into advertising. You know, you go into an industry like that because of the creativity. Mm -hmm. And here I was dealing with HR issues, legal issues, finance meetings every day. I'm like, this is just not my jam. I'm not really enjoying it. So I kind of just decided, well, you know, I've done what I want to do in advertising. And there's really not like a job out there that's so enticing to me that I feel like I haven't done at this point because I've pretty much worked on everything I'd want to work on. And I really got into advertising because I loved the idea of building brands and the creativity that you can apply to solve business problems. 
And I wasn't doing that. <laughs> the kind of problems I was solving were not those problems. They were literally like lawsuits and HR issues. So um, anyway, I just decided, you know what, it's time to be a little selfish. I'm not getting any younger. And I think I need to do something for myself. And so I left in 2018 and um, I actually started doing some consulting with startups, which I found really fulfilling because a lot of startups don't have the background of branding and marketing and advertising. So they, you know, they have people that are more, you know, engineers from that world and they've created a product that they're in love with, but they don't necessarily know how to market it, you know, or brand it or think about the story or think about the communication strategy or any of that. So I was working with a bunch of startups and that was super fun because I could make an impact. You know, I felt like I was kind of getting back to my roots of really being involved. And then, of course, the uh, the universe kind of intervened because then I met my my hair care partner, James, um, actually through my husband. It was the summer of 2018. I had literally just left the agency world a few months before. Um, But we we were introduced to my husband because James basically confessed to Bill that he'd been working on these um, formulations as a side gig for like 10 years. No one really knew he was doing it. It was just kind of like his little side project that he would kind of spend his discretionary income Mm -hmm. on. And he said to Bill, you know, I think I kind of have these sort of done, but I'm not sure what to do next. Um, And my husband, as I mentioned before, he was more of a car guy and worked in financial services. And I was the one that was doing beauty and consumer goods. And so he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Talk to Lynn, put us together. I was super skeptical because I'm thinking to myself, what guy does this on his own for so long? So either there's a problem because why did it take so long? You know, um, could Mm -hmm. he not find the resources? Did he not know what he wants? Is he like one of these people that's a perfectionist and it never will get done? You know, I'm thinking like, this is a little odd. But then I met him and I tried the products and I was blown away and they're fantastic. And I, you know, I realized he's actually, he is a perfectionist in the sense of he knew he wanted to make clean formulas, clean meaning no sulfates, parabens, phthalates. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really hard to do in hair care and he wanted them to be really high performing. And it's, it's just takes time to figure out what alternative ingredients you can put in there to replace the, the bad shit, mm-hmm. right? Like the detergents and the, all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. so I realized he wasn't actually crazy. <laughs> He's a, he was a genius. <laughs> it's just, you know, he needed then some help to actually bring it to market. And that's where my expertise obviously comes in. And we decided to partner together and launch, launch Masami. So that's kind of the long story of what, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, I love it. And so Masami is, I, I love the, the background and like the sourcefulness. Is it Jap, Japan? Yeah. So Masami so the- is. Um, well, it's named after James's husband, Masa, who's really our muse. Um, our, uh-huh. our main ingredient comes from Japan. It comes from Masa's hometown, actually. Yeah. It's called Mikabu, and it's a Japanese ocean botanical. And it's basically like a sponge for your hair. It just gives you all this hydration, oh. um, which is awesome. But the key is it does it without weighing your hair down because, I mean... 
I've used a lot of hydrating products in the past and my hair is very thin, as you can tell, like I don't have great hair for somebody who's launching hair care brand, but, um, I can blame my, I can blame my, <laughs> I have my really parents. thin hair too. So I'm all ears. Yeah. <laughs> my hair's thin and I color it. Cause I, you know, there's that, but anyway, um, so I just, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about that, that, you know, we didn't want products that would do their job in terms of give you the hydration, but then leave your hair flat and look oily or greasy. So the trick was how do you deliver the benefit, but also being lightweight. And that's, that's where this superhero ingredient comes in. Cause it allows us to do that. That's awesome. So you're currently at what stage in the company? So you have the product and you've launched and you launched at an interesting time, time frame, right? Like during COVID? Well, or right before COVID. Right before COVID, because we launched at New York Fashion Week in February of 2020. So in a way, we it was a little bit of ignorance is bliss. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if it was six months yeah. later, we probably would have been like, oh my God, you know, do we launch? Do we not? What do we do? <laughs> but here we are sitting in New York City at Fashion Week. We had two shows where we had done the hair and uh, we were oblivious. I mean, there was talk about COVID, but it wasn't to the point where it was like, you know, everything's shutting down. Um, and in fact, it was quite the opposite. Right. The shows were oversold and they were packed to capacity and they were people wall to wall squeezed into these little rooms in New York City, which, you know, of course, a few months later seemed crazy because, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. There was no social distancing whatsoever. That concept hadn't really taken hold. So that was, I think, fortunate for us that we launched right before, because like I said, if it would have been six months later, that's that just gives you a lot of angst because there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, you just have to keep moving. Mm-hmm. It's like we talked about before we started recording at an entrepreneur's daily life. It's like some days, you know, you're like somebody like my post and that's enough. <laughs> you know, you just, you look for the smallest thing <laughs> right, to get excited right. about because you just want to keep things moving in the right direction. Um, and I think that, that, um, Absolutely. you know, when we launched, it was a little bit like that. It was like, okay, well, you know what? We're going to focus on content. We're going to focus on building our customers and, um, trying to create loyal customers and we're going to focus on obviously online and we'll just put off some of the salon conversations till later and see what happens, you know? So that's pretty much what we did. Um, Well, now your go-to-market strategy. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say your go-to-market strategy is interesting because you're doing both sides of the fence, right? You're going to salons and you're selling direct to consumer? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So I, it, I guess I always thought you had to do one or the other. I didn't know you could do both. Well, so I talked to us about that. Be like that. It was very much channels were very discreet in the sense that if you chose one lane, you kind of just stick with the lane because salons didn't want DTC products. You know, they wanted salon exclusive products or. Um, you know, if, if you were, uh, sold, sold in, yeah, if you were sold in a salon, the salons didn't want you on Amazon, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but if you were a Mm -hmm. DTC brand also, 
you kind of had to stick in that lane because that's that's a different sort of margin setup. But now I feel like it's very different. There are so many interesting channels, marketplaces, opportunities, and some of it defies description. I mean, we're on some social selling channels, I guess I would call them that, or some live, live shopping, live streaming. Are they influencer platforms? Are they e-commerce platforms? Are they social channels? They're kind of all of the above, if you know what I mean. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's the cool thing about launching a business now is you, you don't have those restrictions because I think salons are much more pragmatic. And they also recognize that there are some really great DTC brands out there that are salon quality that they want to, that they want to support. Um, and I think also being a small brand and indie brand is now seen as kind of a cool thing where it used to be, you're not a big mass name. So therefore, you know, that's not a, that's not good. So I think overall the tailwinds are in our favor or any small brands favor, I'll say to launch. It's just, you have the same challenges of anyone launching anytime, which is, you know, how do you differentiate yourself? Um, you know, beauty is super, super, super crowded. Um, I mean, virtually anyone can launch a beauty brand these days and, you know, um, so how, how do you stand out? Uh, and that's, that's tricky, right? So, and, you know, I look at some categories like CBD these days, there are so many CBD brands that it's super confusing, you know, as a consumer, it's confusing. Right. Right. Well, you got to really know what you're supposed to be looking for, which requires a lot of research. I guess, but for the average human, they don't know. They just see CBD, right? And right. there are differences. There are several differences out there, but. Exactly. It's interesting. So you, have you found one channel for those that may be wanting to launch a beauty product or launching a product? Have you found channels that you think work better or social selling? How do you, how do you get the word out? Yeah. And it's tough when you don't have an investor, like we're very, we're self-funded, we're bootstrapped. So, you know, every dollar we have is allocated basically. So um, we, we do have a few things that we like to do more than other things. Like I'm not a big fan of Facebook. Um, it's hard. Mm -hmm. The ROI is tough, but it's almost like it's hard to avoid because it's just such a big channel that to not be there feels like, um, you know, you're potentially missing mm -hmm. out, but it's been, we've struggled on Facebook and I know most other founders I've spoken to have said the same thing. I think Pinterest is more interesting. It actually drives a lot of traffic to our site. Mm. The thing that Pinterest doesn't do is drive a lot of conversion in terms of sales. So it's people that are more discovery minded, you know, looking for ideas, but not necessarily looking to buy right away. But I think the reality that any business has to wrap their head around, um, and people don't like it when I say this, <laughs> but usually it takes somebody somewhere between seven and 10 touch points before they'll buy. And that's definitely true for my business. And I'm shampoo. I'm not a complicated category, really. Do you know what I mean? Like, so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you think about it from the perspective of like, 
I'm a, yes, I'm premium priced and yes, people care about their hair and yes, they want to make sure that, you know, it's going to work for them. All that stuff is true. And that's why I think people don't just buy it right away. But if you're in a category that's a higher purchase consideration, you know, higher price point, jewelry, uh, lingerie, you know, um, home products, like it's even going to be more than that. You know what I mean? A lot of times that seven to 10 could be even longer. So you just have to be pragmatic about it and figure out like, what are the things you can do that are sort of top of the funnel to get awareness? Like podcasts, I do a lot of them because I like them. They're fun. Um, but it's a, just a great way to tell a more holistic story, right? And have a, an interesting conversation instead of me just pushing ads out at you. Um, so it's like, how do you do things that get awareness, but then also drive people down the funnel? And, you know, email marketing is really effective. That's where we get a decent amount of sales. And then I would say partnerships. So I know you met Lauren Rome from Romer Skincare. Yeah, I love your idea. I love the value that you put around partnerships. So yeah, talk to us about that. So you've partnered with brands, a variety of brands, not just beauty brands, which I think is fantastic. I think it's yeah. out of the box thinking. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting because before we launched in like fall of 2019, we had products, and, but we were still testing out our website and our fulfillment and all that. I had approached a couple of beauty founders that I knew and asked them if they'd be interested in collaborating. And I got like deer in the headlight kind of responses like, what, what do you mean? Like, huh? <laughs> um, so it was not a very receptive right. audience. But then when you think about COVID, I think that pragmatism of people saying, oh shit, we got to figure out what to do now. And founders wanting to be more generous, I guess, and helping each other. So what, so I started reaching out to other founders again in, you know, March or April, and it was a completely different conversation. People were like, yeah, this is amazing. What can we do? And then we're like, okay, we can write blog posts about you. We can do live streams together. We can do giveaways together. We can, um, do gift with purchases. We even did a, we created a bundled holiday gift box a luxury gift box with like five brands and we sold it on our website. So I think there are a lot of things you can do. And to your point, it doesn't have to just be your immediate um, direct, you know, category. Uh, we have a lot of clean beauty mm -hmm. brands we partner with like Romer skincare is, is one of our go-to partners. But to me, it's more about aligning around values. You know, if you can find brands that share your values and for us, inclusivity is a really important value. I mean, we're gender neutral, we're, um, you know, we work on virtually every hair type. Um, so inclusivity is re really important. And then, you know, sustainability for us is really huge. Like we support ocean research because uh, we get our main ingredient from this little town that got devastated by the tsunami in 2011. And they're still not, they're, the ocean there is still not back to being balanced. So we kind of feel like we have a responsibility for taking something from the earth that we should be giving back. So we look for other brands that are aligned around those values that have transparency around their supply chain, that are cruelty free, that, you know, that share our, our values for sure. Um, a lot of female founder brands. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Um, so now we're actually partnering with a jewelry brand called Access 79 that is like a sustainably sourced jewelry brand, um, which is pretty cool. Um hmm. 
Um, we've partnered with, um, yeah, luxury. We've partnered with, like I said, beauty. We've partnered with brands that are in fashion and care about sustainability. Um, our sister brand is a candle business called Ilda Nature, which is uh, a luxury beeswax candle. So, you know, we do things with, with that brand as well. So yeah, there's so many opportunities. That's awesome. I just thought of another intro to make to you of um, a company out of New York that's doing sustainable hand, high luxury handbags. That, Ooh. Yeah, yeah, that sounds perfect. That actually, would be cool. I didn't think of that before. It seems to me that one thing I've noticed throughout the podcast that I've done is one topic keeps coming up with a lot of brands and that's sustainability. Yeah. And it's, it seems to be where everyone is focusing at least new brands. And I'm sure bigger brands that are already out there, they're rethinking things, but that's a very common topic. It's interesting. Um I think, I think it's just a reality of how hopefully we as brands want to contribute and how we want to build our brands um, mm -hmm. and how we want to give back. But also, you know, consumers are more and more demanding around sustainability, which frankly they should be. Um, and I look at the beauty industry and I just am a little horrified at just some of the waste, um, some of the packaging, which, you know, Look, I'm a sucker for beautiful packaging too, but a lot of it isn't easily recyclable, <laughs> you know, and it's just a waste. Right. And so um, we've always hated the fact that we're in plastic bottles, but we're in the shower, which makes it challenging to, you can't do glass, you know, there, there are, you're, you're limited in terms of the types of, um, in, you know, ingredients you can create with um, packaging. So um, we actually just launched a large size sustainable refillable bottle that's ceramic. It's, it's almost, it's, it's large. It's like this big, um, it's, it's almost like a swell, uh -huh. bottle, like that kind of feel, but it's, um, refillable and they're refill pouches. And, you know, to me, it took us, it took us like 18 months to figure it out because we had to play around again with different, different types of, um, just different things, different materials we could use and, and, and ways to put it together. And then, um, and then of course, during COVID, all the supply chain was challenged and we had to change suppliers because they were telling us it was going to take a year to make it and all that. But we finally got it done and just launched it. And like, I think we're going to see a lot more things like that happening where, especially with the small brands, because we can do it and we don't have like, it's hard when you're in a mass channel, I think, like you're in a Target or you're in a CVS, you can't, it's, it's a little bit more challenging to figure that out. Like, how do you sell the bottle and the refill pack and make it a system and make it easy for people to do it? Um, but I think the small brands are figuring it out. And I think we'll hopefully put some pressure on the beauty industry as a whole to start to just make this more of a part of how we go to market and, and our business. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think, I certainly think it lends itself to some creativity too, coming up with new ways to recycle or to use recycled goods, right? 
Oh was yeah. It Adidas a few years a couple of years ago they started making tennis shoes out of recycled plastic. It was recycled something. I it was it's fascinating to me. Yeah, it is fascinating. Um and you're right. I think there are going to be more and more um entrepreneurs that start to tackle like how to reuse stuff and stuff that's currently just being tossed, right? Um whether it's tires. Think about some of the, like car tires, like things that are right now just landfill. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to be pretty cool. And people will hopefully will support the brands that, that figure that stuff out, you know? I think so. I think everyone's thinking along that way. So um, you're on a mission to transform the beauty industry. And what are your thoughts about that? What part of the beauty industry would you like to transform? I would say there's probably three areas. One is just around clean because there's really no reason these days for products to still have bad stuff in there. Um, you really don't need the sulfates, the parabens, the, the phthalates. So I think the idea of, okay, people have talked about clean beauty, but there really is a clean beauty revolution now. I think COVID also accelerated that. And it's kind of time for the industry to just agree that like, this is what we should be doing. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two, mm -hmm. I think inclusivity again, like there's still a lot of the industry that feels like they are not for everyone. Um, the imagery, the retouching, the, you know, uh, the models. Um, and that's, mm -hmm. that's a, a tough thing to change, but I think, um, it is happening. Like, I think we're starting to see brands that are embracing just a more inclusive approach overall. And I just don't believe that you really need to have gender specific products anymore. Um, which, you know, to me feels like an old, old way of thinking. Um, cause I think our world has become much more gender fluid and, you know, Everyone is hair. Everyone needs hydration. You know, you don't need to make the one in the blue <laughs> bottle for the man and the one in the, you know, whatever bottle for the woman. Like, it just Pink. feels like, yeah, I know, right? right. It's, so that just feels old. So that, I think, has to change. And then um, we talked about sustainability. I think that would be the third area. It's like just getting, getting their act together. I think, you know, I've worked in a lot of categories, as we talked about earlier, that are much more altruistic and CSR oriented, meaning giving back. Like it's, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of companies that make it a part of their mission and they give back to the community. I mean, I worked on a brand called Raising Canes. Okay. It's a chicken finger company. It's kind of funny to talk about it, but like, really? a, I've never heard of it. Oh yeah. They're really good. Actually. <laughs> they're, they were started at, um, <laughs> I think it's, uh, was it Louisiana LSU anyway, but, um, but a big part of what they do is give back to the community. So in their case, it's family oriented, you know, and it's community based and they have programs that are localized, but it's such a clear part of what they do and what they stand for that it's really embedded them in the communities that they're in. But the beauty industry doesn't seem to have that approach. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Of like, what are we going to do to give back? So 
for us, it's about the ocean for, you know, L'Oreal, it could be about something else. I don't know. But like a lot of times to me as a consumer, it feels bolted on as like, oh, we better do something as opposed to like, it's really a core part of our values and what we believe in. So I, I think that's got to change too. I think the industry can do more to just be a better corporate citizen in the world. I love that. So what do you think? Well, let me back up. What are three pieces of advice you would give to other founders? So boy, um, I would say the first thing I always tell people, especially if they're in that in-between mode where they have an idea, they've been working it on, on the side, but they're not sure when to actually leave their job and go do it kind of thing. Um, one of the best things you can start to do is just network like crazy because um, having resources, advisors, mentors, peers, people you can bounce stuff off of is absolutely invaluable. And um, I wish I had done more of that when I was at JWT, frankly, you know, I was at my last job. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't fully realize that I would be in this job. So, but if you have that foresight, mm -hmm. you can actually start to build those connections. Now you don't need to wait um, because you'll find that there right. are many, many times when you're like, I just need somebody's approach on landing pages. <laughs> I just need to talk to somebody about SEO, you know, like, and, and so you'll, you'll be able to have like a, a network of people that you can tap for all these random things that come up. Um, so build, build it and build it wide. Don't be narrow. Don't think specifically like, oh, I only need contacts in hair care. It's no, you need contacts who have launched DDC businesses. You have, you need contacts who have manufactured products abroad, you know, whatever, whatever those things that you're doing, like it all helps. So that would be one piece of advice is to just shamelessly build your network. Um, I think the second piece of advice would be around uh, just really being clear on your brand story and positioning and make sure there's a market for it because you know, I've, I've, like I said, I was consulting for a few startups before, and it, it's sad when you see that there's a founder who's super, super passionate and loves what he's making or she's making and the idea of it, and they're really into it. But then you realize that really nobody else is. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. And they just think it's the greatest idea right. ever. Right. I like, am sad on a few of those pitches. Right. Me too. And then you feel like I have, you know, and everybody's, you're like, what is that all about? What was that all about? I don't even know what he's talking about. That right. <laughs> was funny. And then you don't want to have to be the person to tell them how bad their idea is, but it's not a good idea. I mean, I can, I don't even want to say what it is. There's a woman who was spent a lot of her time and money launching a product that was so, it was almost like it could be a Seinfeld episode, Seinfeld episode. It was so bizarre that I, I wanted to laugh and then I realized she was serious. So anyway, my point being, there's stuff you can do to validate and test how scalable 
your idea is. You don't have to wait until you launch it and realize you spent all this time and money and nobody likes it. Make sure that there's a viable market. You can test your friends. You can do Survey Monkey. There's so many things you can do just to get a gut check on like, okay, is anyone actually interested in this? Are they going to buy it? And is it differentiated? If you're in a crowded category like beauty, you know, you can't just launch like another CBD skincare brand. You have to make it like, okay, what's different about yours? Um, so that would be, that would probably be my second piece of advice. And then I guess my third piece of advice is just uh, figure out how to prioritize in a way that works for you. Because when you're an entrepreneur, there are so many little stupid things that are glomming on for attention that you could spend your day just swatting flies all day, every day, and you're not really doing the bigger things to move your business forward. So, um, so I've had to be really disciplined about thinking like longer term goals, short term goals, and then there's some medium ones and trying to make sure that within my week, I'm not spending all my time on one side or the other side. You know what I mean? Like you still have to deal with the immediate mm -hmm. issues but making sure you set up, set aside enough time to think about your longer term goals too. And you're working towards those as well, because it's, it's really easy to get sucked in and also learn how to say no, because if you're like me, I spent a lot of my career and to be fair, it was probably one of the things that helped me advance was that I was a person that they could give the worst assignments to the worst clients, because I wouldn't say no. And then I would, <laughs> I would do it and then I would make it work. And you know what I mean? And, but it's kind of thankless. Right. And there You're are like a Mikey, like from yeah. the old life cereal school, uh, commercial. Totally. You know what I'm talking about? The Mikey, Mikey the, with the life cereal that it was always, yeah. <laughs> and I'll so there it. are times okay. when I think you just have to say like enough already, like, no, I'm not doing that. And just, and not to be difficult, but like, just be a little more protective of your sanity and of yourself. <laughs> That's all. Because, yeah. Right. I, right. I think too many boundaries. women I know are healthy are boundaries. Doing, yeah. Boundaries. Exactly. So that those would be my. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. So I was going to ask you um, for the founders or the startups that you helped, how did you get in touch with the startups? Because I'm certain that there are some people out there right now that are startups and they just wish they could get in touch with someone like yourself to help with their strategies and marketing and looking for a consultant. Were you involved in like a startup pitch group or network or where, what, how did you do that? Um, it's a good question because there are a lot of great, I actually know a ton of great consultants as well. I don't do so much consulting myself anymore because I'm so busy on my own business, but, um, but I have a lot of great contacts, but in the beginning I, I had a couple, I had one reach out to me directly, um, who I had met when mm -hmm. I was at J Walter Thompson and I said, Oh, I'm leaving. Great. What are you doing? You know, it just kind of like turned into a project. And then what happened is that project went quite well and we did a whole rebranding and repositioning. And then the lead investor for that company 
asked us if we would work some, with some of his other companies in his portfolio and introduced us to like three more companies. So it was a lot of word of mouth. It was like this, you know, and then and that that's almost all of our business. It was like, and then that one introduced us to another one. And then that one, you know, so I was in New York, but I found that almost all my business was in San Francisco because it was Silicon Valley and they all knew each other and that's, we were getting recommended. So that's the best situation when you can get into a place where your current clients are recommending you to other potential clients. But if you're not, if you don't have that ability, because it's not always that easy, there are some great resources. So I'll give you two. One is um, Betaworks, which I'm a member of. And I actually do advising. I do like, you know, lunch hours for Betaworks where people can book a half an hour of my time um, just to talk about their business. Um, it could be go to market strategy. It could be branding. It could be positioning, whatever. And I enjoy doing that just because why not? I mean, it's a half an hour for me. It's nothing. And usually they're like, oh my God, because they just don't think about some of these things. You know? So for them, it's super helpful, usually. <laughs> um, so Betaworks is a good resource. And then Lunch Club. I don't know if you know of Lunch Club. If you don't, I can invite you, Brooke. I don't but know that. I've never heard basically, of it's, sure. it's, it's a club that is a sort of randomizer connector of business people. So you can meet one or two or three a week and you can kind of put in your criteria. Like I want to meet people who are in digital marketing or I want to meet people who are founders or I want to meet people who are in my industry. Um, and there's no expectations. It's a Zoom call. It's a half an hour. You know, you talk about whatever you talk about. And I found the people I've met there have been great. Um, it, it's just a way to expand your network again. And it's a lot easier when yeah. you have like something like that to facilitate it for you, especially if you're an introvert, which I'm a natural introvert. So it's like, you know, the idea of like reaching out to people on my own is not always that comfortable. So um, when you're on something like a lunch club or part of Betaworks, it's just, it just happens. So it's easy. Um, and then you're getting connected. And sometimes the connections are like, oh, that wasn't very useful but it was only a half an hour. And other times you're like, oh my God, I could totally help this person with these types of connections and they can help me with this and whatever. Um, and I just had one of those yesterday where I met somebody who was amazing, um, who's a consultant. Um, she does a lot of communication strategy and PR consulting. And, um, but we had a lot of sort of overlap and where we could kind of help each other, which was great. So yeah, I would say those two are worth checking awesome. out. Yeah, it's just one more to throw in there. Is called Current, C-U-R-R-N-T. It's like a knowledge creation platform. It's basically like subject matter mm -hmm. experts kind of congregate in a, uh, a room, like a clubhouse room, but it's asynchronous, so you don't have to go on your mm -hmm. schedule time. And they talk about a topic. It could be, you know, the future of DTC um, and what that looks like and... That's also been a great place to meet people that are in the industry that are kind of dealing with issues you're you're dealing with. And also just to learn, like, what is the latest thinking on some of these things? So um, it's free to join, like all these things that I mentioned. Well, Betaworks, I think, charges. I think they do have us like a subscription. But I, I know Lunch Club and Current are both free to join and they're great to network. And um, yeah.
That's great. Thanks for sharing those. I can't wait to look into them. So uh, we talked about this on our previous call and you were talking about being a founder at an, you're not old, but at an older age versus <laughs> like starting a yes. company. The, the trend right now, it feels like in your early twenties starting companies, what would you, what advice or what are your thoughts about that? Like pros, cons, advantages, disadvantages? I mean, it kind of is what it is, right? It's something you can't, I can't get younger. So it is like, it is what it is. But I do think there are some advantages. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing. I just no. wonder if you come up against any challenges. No, you're unique. And yes, you're right. I, I, I have for sure. I mean, the good thing is I have a lot of experience in doing what I've done, doing what I'm doing now before, meaning I've done it before. So like I can make very fast decisions. Mm -hmm. I don't need to sweat the details. I just do it, move on. So that's the good thing. Um, and also I'm, I'm, I know how to build teams. I know what capabilities I need. I'm very self-aware of what I'm not good at. <clears throat> which sometimes when you're younger, you don't have that. So I think there are huge advantages to being an older founder. Plus the data shows that older founders tend to be more successful. But to your point, like there are biases that I've found that are baked in a lot of times, I think from investors, which ironically, if the data says that older founders are more successful, the investors tend to skew much younger, I feel like towards younger founders. Uh, and I... I had an investor Do you think it's tell, because they have more control over that. That's a good. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that before. Actually, that's possible. But I actually had an investor say to my husband that um, he didn't know I was listening on the phone. Uh, that oh. I was too old. That I wouldn't have enough energy to launch a company, and that it would never work. So, and he didn't know that we were married. So he had, he had asked Bill about the team and Bill was describing me and my role. And the guy was like, you need to find a new, a new CEO. She's, she's too old. <clears throat> and, you know, so, so the, the reality is had I been on, on the phone, he wouldn't have said it to my face probably. And I, you know, but I think I have felt that implicit bias in talking with investors before, for sure when they kind of go, wait, so, okay, you've been in the business how long? And, you know, so that's part of why we don't have investors. And I don't want to deal with investment money right now, because I don't know, you know, do I really want to be feeling like that? That is so interesting. Like, it's one thing for women to have to go up against all of the challenges that we do when it comes to fundraising. But then if we're going to add age as a discrepancy in there, as, like, oh my goodness, that's, that's crazy. I just, that's enlightening, I should say. Enlightening. <laughs> well, I think it's just reality. And the irony is that this particular investor who was saying I was way too old was in his 60s. So he was somehow exempt from his own comment. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but yet, <laughs> right. 
he's looking maybe at he was me. exhausted and he was just thinking you should be too <laughs> maybe maybe i think he was thinking that i don't know i kind of felt the opposite that like he thinks he's a rock star but he's like one in a million you know like he's unusual no one's like him ah. um but it doesn't matter i feel like I've, I've gotten that same vibe from a number of other ones too, where they just, because when they ask questions that are more around, so how long have you been in the, you know, like those are telling, right? Like they're not mm-hmm. asking me about mm-hmm. our strategy for acquiring new customers, or they're not asking me, you know what I mean? Things, things that are relevant to the mm-hmm. business today. They're asking more sort of pointed questions um, about, um, you know, the, the team. And I, get it on one hand, because I've always heard this, and I think it is true that when investors are investing in a company, they're investing in the founders. They're not really investing in the company. Although let's face it, like we said, I, the woman who had the Seinfeld (laughs) idea, I would not invest in that, even if I loved her. So I do think you have to think that the product and the brand, and it's all, you know, you have, there's gotta be a threshold of like acceptability there um, and then, and then you're investing in the founder. So I don't think it's only the founder, but, um, but I get it. If, 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 if you really are believing in the founders to grow the business, you want to know, you know, are they capable of doing it? Can they do it? Do they have the energy to do it? Whatever. But, um, but I just think it's interesting because when you look at my track record, you know, most pe- people that are not investors have the opposite take. They're like, oh my God, you've got such an amazing career. And yet the investors look mm-hmm. at it and they just see the years. They don't see the actual experience. Yeah. That's interesting. So anyway, hmm. it was learning for me. You know, I'm always learning and it was, and, and it also, what I also realized is, is trying to get money is like a full-time job, literally. Like if you're dealing with investor meetings, cause it's multiple meetings, it's multiple investors. And I just decided I don't have time for this. I need to focus on actually building the business because if I'm doing 20 mm-hmm. plus hours a week, just trying to get my, you know, get an investor on board, um, I'm not building the business during those 20 hours. So I need to focus on what I think is more important. So that's, that's basically where we are with that. You're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, what do you want your legacy to be? That's a hard one. I would love for my kids to take over my businesses <laughs> and grow them into clean beauty, you know, I don't know, like amazing companies, but that's not going to happen. I don't think I've, I've tried to drag my children kicking and screaming to get involved and I just don't see it. But I do think um, making clean beauty the norm would be great. That would be a, a good legacy for us to really feel like we've made a dent in uh, the beauty industry. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, where can we find your products at? So you can find them on our website. On your website, okay. Um, our website is lovemasami.com, L-O-V-E-M-A-S-A-M-I.com. But we're also on Amazon and which makes it a little bit easier for some people because um, we're, uh, if you're a prime user, it's, you know, free shipping. We offer free shipping too on our site, but still. Um, 
And we're on like a bunch of other places. We're in spoken wheel salons. We're in dream dry salons. We're on Vera shop. We're on the vertical um, and a bunch of other e-commerce sites. So uh, if anybody's in the UK, we're in, we're in um, uh, the honest company or I'm sorry, the positive company. Ooh. Oh, the po- they're called the positive, the company positive in the company U- in the UK. Um, to- completely off subject. And I was getting ready to um, close this down, but now I'm curious, how do you handle product shipping and I guess storage? I don't know. Warehousing um, when you're selling international. Do you have a hub over there? No, we don't ship from here. So for the UK, we have a partner in the UK who does it for us. Um, And then we're about to partner with um, a company in um, Amsterdam, actually, who can ship to Europe for us. And then we are actually in two e-commerce sites in Dubai where they do the fulfillment and warehousing. Those e-commerce sites do it themselves. Mm. So it's all a little, each one's a little different. That's a whole thing for me too, is learning all that stuff. <laughs> the international side yeah, is a lot. Yeah, but it's good. It's interesting. Good. Is it made in the States? Yes. Our products are actually made in Chicago. Is the shampoo made? Okay. Yeah. Ah, awesome. Yeah. Okay. And how can we help you? Like, what can we do for you? How can we help you succeed? Oh, you're so sweet to to ask that. I I would say, um, yeah, if there are any brand partners that you know of, or um, that would be, you know, good for us to partner with other female founder brands, other indie brands, um, that would be amazing. We would love to join forces and and, uh, partner and help out other brands as well. Awesome. Well, I greatly appreciate you spending some time with us today and telling your story and giving us some insight into your journey. And for those who are interested, we have their products on our website and we have them on our social media so you can check them out or go to their website and or you can go to any of those places that she listed. So thanks again, Lynn. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Wild Feather. Be authentic, be limitless, and love yourself. (laughs) 